Hi, I'm Robin Birkin and welcome to the Fertility Warriors podcast, a place for women struggling to conceive to find emotional support, conception advice and real talk. To me, being a warrior means true glory is in rising every time we fall, having the courage to be afraid and being ready for whatever challenges cross our path. So welcome, warrior. You're on your way. I promise to support and guide you on every single episode. Let's begin. I know you are all going to love this episode. What you have not heard is that Sasha and I have just been chatting for like 20 minutes. Sasha, you are, I think, the first guest to be a repeat guest on the podcast. That's how much I love you. So thank you for being with us. Oh, yay. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be back. And what I love about you, which we just discussed then, is... It's just in the explanations. We were just chatting then as friends about, you know, like, why do we do this? Why does the industry do this? And it's just in the way that you explain it to us. We all have so many questions about, like, what about this test? What about that test? And we don't want, like, we don't need to have necessarily a whole podcast episode on certain questions. But what we do need is someone to give us a really down-to-earth, human, explained in plain English, but based on actual research and data answers, and you are the person. Oh, thank you. That means a lot, honestly. I'm like, and I'm being sincere, like I really mean it. So thank you for being on here. Thank you for agreeing to be grilled with all the questions. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm excited. I can't wait. (laughs) <laughs> so we're going to dive in today. So everybody, what we're doing, I'm totally grilling Sasha on some of the big questions that I've had recently. Some of the questions that you, the audience, our warriors might not understand, what you might be wondering, what you might have heard along the grapevine and feel generally confused about. So it's always like myth busting here and it's going to be a kind of speed round, but obviously we want to give some decent answers and I'm excited to start. So let's dive in. Here's the first thing that I've seen a lot about on Instagram is controversy around the pill. I'm seeing like lots of different opinions out there at the moment and lots of people feeling generally confused about the pill as a result of this. But let's just clear the air. Are you driving a Porsche because you get paid lots of money from the (laughs) pharmaceutical companies to prescribe the pill to every 3.4 people? Okay. Um... (laughs) This has got to be the best question I've ever received. <laughs> okay, so the, <laughs> well, I mean, I do drive a Lexus. I negotiated the crap out of my monthly rate. <laughs> as you should, yep. As I should. It's not that expensive of a car. I live on a fellow salary, which is um, a very average American salary. Okay. It's well below the six figures. Let's just put it that way. And no, I do not get paid. Most doctors don't get paid anything from big pharma, period. But for those who still have doubts and wonder, there is actually a website. I know at least for US doctors for sure, but it might include other 
physicians where it's called openpaymentsdata.cms.gov. And you can see how much a doctor is getting paid from pharmaceutical companies. So for example, I looked myself up and I've received almost $100 total to date. And that money actually has come from things like lunches, where I have to sit through these lectures that are, no offense to the farm reps, usually boring, unless I'm really interested in this new medication, like and what it can do for patients. You know, anytime you go to a pharmaceutical rep dinner, they're usually at a nice fancy restaurant. We have to sign our names on a piece of paper to acknowledge that we have received this meal. And so we can't actually get like physical goods. I think the only physical goods I've received is like a pen. Oh, one time I got a lip chap, which was really exciting. Living large. Yeah. Living large. Okay. So this is the kind of things that we get. Now there are physicians who have paid like positions with these companies, but they have to disclose it. Like they are obligated to. And in fact, if they have any, like if I were to buy stocks um, in any sort of company that's publicly traded, I would have to disclose it to patients before I prescribe it to them. Wow. And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that not every doctor does that, but the majority do. And, um, it's, it's rare that they even do that to begin with. So, yeah. 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 So why do specialists prescribe the pill? There's so many reasons for it. In our case, we don't prescribe it for contraceptive purposes mm-hmm. unless there's a, like, say, for example, a recurrent pregnancy loss patient where we want to complete the workup before um, we want before they get pregnant again. Because if there's something preventable, we don't want them to get pregnant during the workup and then have another loss. And so that might be one example. Um, other times we give it would be for medical reasons like. Uh, women who have anovulation, mostly due to PCOS. Now, the the main reason for that is if they're not trying to conceive, is to actually shed the lining to reduce the risk of endometrial cancer, which is five to six times higher for women who have PCOS. It's a it's a very dangerous thing that we want to prevent. And aside from that, um, it can also help with symptoms like acne, hair loss, un- unwanted hair growth all over the body and face. Um, and then obviously for IVF cycles, a lot of the times we will give the pill and that's just to kind of reduce the risk of developing a cyst, which could delay starting IVF and kind of manipulating the IVF start date, especially for those who have like a strict timing that they need. Yeah. So like if husband, like, so we have in Australia, something called FIFO, like flying fly out workers who go to the mines. So Sometimes when that happens, like you gotta have your dates synced up because husband's flying off to, you know, right. the desert. Does the pill like cause things like PCOS and endometriosis? Like, do people get on the pill when they're sixteen and then get off and be like, "Fuck, it gave me PCOS <laughs> or like it gave me endometriosis"? So yeah, this is one of those things where before we started recording, we I, I told you about where correlation doesn't mean causation. And so this is one of those things where the pill is so good at masking a potential ongoing problem, because it is, say, if you have PCOS, or you have endometriosis, 
it's treating it. And so you don't know you have these problems and then you stop. And then all of a sudden you start getting either severe pelvic pain or you're having abnormal bleeding. And then you think, oh my God, this stupid medication. My doctor did this to me. They didn't even tell me. And of course, I feel like older generations truly believe that birth control pills causes infertility. And so like my mother used to always tell me, you're on it for too long. You're going to have infertility issues like I did. And, you know, I always have to explain, no, it actually might even improve it. It will not worsen it. And so it's just a common myth. It just masks it. As soon as you get off, now you know what your body's actually doing. But also, are you like, mom, why do you think I've spent so much money on university studying this exact thing? <laughs> Not like, mom. Um, <laughs> I can imagine that. She stopped, she, she stopped arguing with me about it as soon as I got into fellowship. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I feel like, you know, you're the expert now. <laughs> right. So... And I just want to highlight the difference between treating and curing. So it's the pill doesn't cure like PCOS or anything like that. It like treats the symptoms. Yeah. Who are the people who possibly should consider taking the pill? So taking the pill would be pretty much anybody who is wanting it for contraceptive purposes, obviously, because that's what it was originally designed for. Um, Women who have irregular periods, once, first, before you start the pill, you have to figure out why you're having irregular periods. But Mm -hmm. if it's because of inovulation, because you have PCOS, then the pill is great as long as you're not trying to get pregnant. And then on top of that, for women who have endometriosis, it's an excellent medication. It tends to work for most women with endometriosis for the first few years. And then after a while, it actually will stop to work for a lot of women. And so they'll have to switch to a different medication. But if it's working, then it's a great med to be on because it'll help to suppress the endometriosis. And by doing that, you're reducing the inflammation. Um, And I, I see a lot of people saying all over social media that the pill actually causes inflammation or that it causes things like insulin resistance, but that's actually not true at all. If anything, it'll help it because for one, if you have PCOS and you have insulin resistance, but you're on birth control pills, then what it does is it reduces your testosterone level over time. And by reduce, yeah, by reducing the testosterone, as long as you're on the correct form of pill, because most pills will all have ethanol estradiol. So just the same form of estrogen. And then what really significantly varies is the progesterone. And there's four generations of progesterones. The older ones, so first generation progesterones, they tend to be more androgenic. So it'll worsen the problem. But the newer ones, like drosperinone and yasmin, that one is actually anti-estrogenic and it works similar to spironolactone. So it reduces your testosterone. If you reduce that, you're reducing your insulin levels and you can actually help with insulin resistance in addition to lifestyle. Um, And then same with endometriosis. If you are suppressing your periods because you're now getting hormone levels that are much lower than what your body would naturally produce, then you're suppressing 
these endometriotic implants that are going to bleed into the pelvis where they're not supposed to and cause inflammation and scar tissue. Yep. I feel like sometimes people get on the bandwagon of things like that, but then forget that like the number one way to reduce inflammation is through diet and lifestyle also. So it's, totally. almost, it's not like an excuse to then keep eating shit. If you're eating shit, like inflammation. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a lot of people out there like get off the pill, get off the pill. But for endometriosis, especially I feel like that can, well, and even I guess PCOS, because you were talking about endometrial cancer, I think it actually can be quite an important thing to consider. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I mean, what's really cool about the pill too, is because, um, for example, for women who have PCOS, the ovary, there, there are various types of cells in the ovary, of course, but what tends to be really predominant in a PCO ovary is the theca cells, which produces your androgens. And when you're on the pill for a while, it suppresses that. And so by suppressing it, a lot of the time women, as soon as they get off, the first few months is when they are the most fertile and oftentimes will get pregnant on their own naturally without anything. Mm -hmm. And so um, we see this pretty often where we'll put somebody on the pill for a few months, suppress their PCOS, take them off of it, they get pregnant on their own, we don't have to do anything anymore. So wow. it's it's pretty great. And then, you know, then it kind of comes back and goes back to the old ways of irregular periods and high testosterone, et cetera, et cetera. And PCOS, my understanding is that it is essentially characterized by high levels of androgens. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is. We don't really know what the original cause of it is, but it, it's thought that the basically the pathophysiology of PCOS is is two things. One is insulin resistance, and then the other is that the pituitary gland of the brain is releasing too much LH. LH then is signaling to the ovaries to produce testosterone and androgens, and more androgens worsens insulin resistance. And insulin, there's insulin receptors in the ovary, which then produces more androgens. And then the more androgens worsens the insulin resistance, which then worsens the androgen problem. And it's a vicious cycle that keeps going and going. And the more insulin you have, the more difficult it is to lose weight. In fact, it causes weight gain. And so all of a sudden, these women are like, I have all this hair. I'm losing the hair on my head. My acne sucks. I can't lose weight. I've done everything. And then they're super frustrated because us doctors are like, well, lose weight, eat better, exercise. And they're like, I have, I'm trying. You're not hearing me. You know, I've been on every just, diet. You, yeah. Yeah. And, a day. yeah. Right. And, and a lot of physicians don't believe it. And they're like, well, come back to me once you've lost X amount of pounds. And then and this is something, honestly, I, I was very much like that before, I have to admit. And I've learned a lot from the patient perspective from being on social media and following all these hashtags and, and, and really truly seeing, like, I feel like in the beginning when I would see these posts, I would get very defensive and not necessarily reply, but think, oh my God, they don't know any better. And then over time, I started to realize, you know what? The problem is not them, it's me. <laughs> I I need to hear them out and see, like, you know what? This woman has been trying and I'm just sitting here being like, lose weight when I understand the pathophysiology of this disease 
and I'm not truly true I'm not really truly trying to understand her which is problematic so yeah yeah but I think like like there's so many stories like that and you know like when we look at psychotherapists the really traditional mode of treating people with addictions uh with alcohol and things like that used to be get sober then come back and now you know that story's changed and i can't remember what the analogy that i heard was but sometimes it's like telling someone to cure themselves and then come back right for themselves like it doesn't always work right and totally so I, think I am definitely the same but social media people like nicola salmon have really opened my eyes to the struggles of weight and infertility and just how much of an uphill battle that is they've been on every diet under the sun and yeah it's bloody hard so is it let's talk now about another thing that i've seen quite controversially on social media is people who are like progesterone magic supplementy thing take it like all the time just take progesterone more progesterone all the time and it, like i don't think you should take progesterone during your follicular phase <laughs> No, <laughs> unless you want birth control. <laughs> no. Okay, so so actually, so progesterone is the primary hormone in a lot of contraceptives. Mm. So the Nexplanon implant in your arm, all uh -huh. it does is release progesterone. So guess what that does? It, set, it shuts off the signaling of your brain to the ovaries to start developing a dominant follicle and ovulate it stops ovulation same with Depo-Provera mm -hmm. it's a long releasing progesterone that lasts for three months and so yeah it's the same thing even actually with IVF cycles um with you know there's the antagonist cycle so where you get your FSH and then you I get know the names I don't know what they do like the sandwich the antagonist anyway <laughs> Yeah, yeah I'm same. sorry. That, that's yeah, okay. that's how I figured. I I might as well like you know say what it is. But you know, for for women who've gone through IVF and they received something like gonalef, mm -hmm. um, and they received a GnRH antagonist, so not Lupron, um, but something like Cetratide, um, then instead of using that, a lot of people use progesterone to stop ovulation of the eggs that you're trying to retrieve mm, so that yeah. is how effective progesterone is at that so if you're going to take progesterone all the time you are not going to ovulate and you are not going to get pregnant and this is why it's really important to run your supplements past people like i always say tell like talk to your fertility specialist because you don't want to be undoing what, like, especially when you're paying a lot of money, like undoing what they're doing. And it's interesting that you mentioned Depro-Provera because I was going to mention that like when we come off the pill, my understanding is that your cycle should return fairly quickly. But the only one that I understand where it might take a while is Depro-Provera. Yeah, that tends to be a longer one. Yeah, and because it's this long acting. Yeah, drone. yeah. So my next question now these are like not necessarily super flowy but i feel i don't know if you feel the same but i feel like there's a big vibe of like fertility specialists getting frustrated with people who don't have medical degrees like 
people who are like natural, I don't know, whatever they are, like naturopaths, nutritionists, functional medicine practitioners being like, oh, you know what I mean? Do you ever learn much? Do you, do you I mean, well, I know the answer because you and I are friends, but are you anti anyone who doesn't have like a medical degree? Personally, I am not anti anyone as long as they are not spewing false promises and false information. So the the part where I get really frustrated and not just me, like all fertility doctors is when there are people who, who, oh my God, I saw a reel on Instagram on explore recently. And it was like, if your provider wants to prescribe uh, birth control pills, run. If you want to find out more, check out my webinar on sale for $180. And it's kind of like, are you kidding me? Like you're going to now tell people to run away from their physician and come listen to you who like, I, of course I had to check out her profile and she doesn't put her credentials. So you don't actually know what her education level is, what her training is. And so that can be extremely dangerous to women who are seeing this and believing it and say, for example, has PCOS, hasn't had a period in two years, now comes to us finally, and we diagnose endometrial cancer before we can even get her pregnant. Yeah. And we're talking about a hysterectomy. So, I mean, it's, it's devastating. And unfortunately, I've seen this more times than I can count. Um, and I mean, it's, it's extremely tragic because they're finally like, okay, I'm willing to see a doctor. Oh, wait, what? I have to get my uterus removed because I have cancer at the age of 35. Yeah. So um, that's where it gets frustrating. Aside from that, I'm all about like a multidisciplinary approach. There's nothing wrong with working as a team. To me, like, I think that you're an incredible resource. If patients are stressed out, it's consuming them. They don't know how to cope. Having someone like you to deal with it is incredible. If they need to go see a nutritionist or a dietitian regarding their lifestyle, even though I feel very, very comfortable doing that myself. However, you know, that's also what they do full time. And so they can probably dedicate more energy to it than I can. And so, you know, for sure, go see a nutritionist. I think that it's important though, that all of us together work as a team to not contradict each other. And, yeah. and yeah. Yeah. you know, especially make the other person look bad and say, oh, well, they're wrong. I disagree. And that should be a conversation that we can have as a team to say, okay, what can we do together that is best for the patient? Yeah, and I that was literally my next question. And this is my philosophy is that you had like number one, the person you're paying the most money to is the fertility clinic. Like you have to sit there mm-hmm. and you have to trust them if you're questioning them. So sometimes like I'll have people in my program and I'll be and my answer is not like don't do this, don't do that. Go back and speak to your specialist and ask the yes. question so that you can get the answer. And I 100% think, like I always compare it to athletes and they've got their coach, they've got their nutritionist, they've got their mindset coach, they've got their sports psychologist, they've just got all of these people Mm -hmm. working together on all of the different components and areas that they need to succeed. Fertility patients, like we can... We can talk about it all we want, but I think as well, we do also need to put some of the responsibility on back onto you guys who are listening, that it's really important for you to assess the risks involved. Like 
if let's say you're looking at your fertility clinic plus seeing like two or three other people and have a look at whether what they're doing will complement your treatment at the mm -hmm. fertility clinic or are they going to give you contradictory advice and what is the risk like what are you, what risks are you going to take understanding that you know like what you've said there's potential for things that could go very wrong and that at the very yeah. least like let's say you this person watched a webinar that said xyz take this treatment at least take that back to the fertility clinic and ask or at least get multiple opinions from multiple different sources be open-minded enough to look at different sources and ask give your fertility clinic and your fertility specialist the opportunity to share their knowledge about what they know about that issue and inform you of the risks so that then you can make your yeah. mind even further right and if you don't like you know if you don't go back to them and let them know like and if you're going to same thing with if you are going to see a traditional chinese medicine practitioner you need to understand that what the medicines that they prescribe could contradict what your fertility specialist has prescribed mm -hmm. so you everybody needs to be in the loop with what everybody's doing a hundred percent because you don't want like and especially you know when we're talking about supplements and we're talking about progesterone uh, and things like that you don't want to undo anybody's work so and we don't want to get we i know how desperate we can all feel I like this is just what we were talking about before the podcast like you want to know you want to know the answers you want to fix what's going on everybody wants that but you have to keep everybody in the loop about like what's happening so you don't go backwards instead of forwards so next question is if you have stage four or significant endometriosis is this a case of just going straight to IVF I would say definitely not Let's start with what is the risk of having infertility if you have endometriosis, just yeah. period. So about 30 to 50% of women with endometriosis will have infertility. Of course, the more severe, the more likely it's going to reduce pregnancy rates. Um, that being said, there are women with really advanced stage endometriosis who have no issues with fertility. There are some that can get pregnant empirically with insemination and ovulation induction. And so we always start with that first, but it's ultimately a discussion with the patient or the couple to see what it is that they prefer. So, you know, do you want to spend the time trying to do insemination with ovulation induction, or do you want to go straight to IVF? Because, you know, it's obviously more cost-effective and more natural if you were to just do insemination. But in the same time, if you're worried that, you know, say you're older, you have pretty advanced endometriosis and it does continue to progress with age and you want multiple kids, then you have to really consider something like IVF. If you know that just one child isn't enough for you and you want at least two to three when you're in your mid to late 30s, that's where you have to have like, like really talk to your doctor about what your goals are because your reproductive goals can really shape how your treatment should be um, kind of catered to those goals. Okay. AMH testing, how accurate is it? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a pretty accurate test for what it was originally like used for. So when it, AMH was first discovered, it was primarily used to help to assess 
and predict ovarian response in an IVF cycle. Mm -hmm. It was never really used to determine, oh, can we predict if you're going to go into diminished ovarian reserve anytime soon or if you're going to go into menopause. We can't really use it for that. Many people have developed these mathematical models to try to predict that, but they're not really reliable. That being said, um, for the most part, when you do get AMH, it's a snapshot for right now, and it's pretty accurate, but there are some women where they'll have a very low AMH and they're diagnosed with diminished ovarian reserve. Um, however, you do their ultrasound, they have multiple antral follicles and they have an amazing response and vice versa, where they have, some women have a higher AMH and they just have a very poor response. So it still requires a full clinical picture, including your antral follicle count on ultrasound. And can it fluctuate? Like, so if it's a hormone, can you have like, you? so you might, for example, have an issue with really low progesterone during your luteal phase, that then with diet and lifestyle changes and blah, 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 that you improve that is AMH the same because it's like a hormone. Can you uh-huh. change that? So it can vary. One of the most common ways that we see varying is if there is sudden rapid weight loss, we actually do see a significant rapid drop. Nice. So women who have bariatric surgery, their mm-hmm. AMH tends to drop significantly. Um, and so I'm not saying that you shouldn't consider bariatric surgery if that is something you need. Um, it just means that ultimately when weight loss is in the picture, slow and steady wins the race really and truly when it comes to AMH. Um, but yeah, it can certainly vary. Sometimes ovarian surgery will cause a sudden drop, but then over time it comes back up. So, um, especially with endometriosis, if you're removing an endometrioma, it's not unusual that after that removal, since you did remove some ovarian tissue, it does drop, but it can also come back up. So it's not it's not something that can be used to really predict anything since it does change. Um, I haven't really come across any studies that talks about how lifestyle change can impact AMH. So I can't really speak to that, but those are the circumstances where we do see a change. So it's not necessarily written in stone. In, no, in other it's factors. not. Like you need to be checking other factors and things like that. Right, exactly. And that's why I do think that doing an ultrasound is incredibly important because if you have an AMH of 0.6 and we do an ultrasound and you have like an antral follicle count of 15, that's amazing. And it's like, okay, well, obviously they're there. Mm. They're and likely going to medications as well, like... Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about very quickly about just a few foods and what your take is on foods. Soy, good or bad for fertility? So good. So, so good. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it can be a little bit controversial when it comes to males consuming soy, but even then, it's still very promising. And women who consume uh, soy from healthy sources, like tofu, edamame, just more like less processed sources of soy. Um, And that actually includes soy milk as well. Uh, Their higher intake improves things like um, endometrial receptivity, ovulation. So overall reproductive outcomes are much, much greater. 
there's an article on my website where I like tried to do my research. I went right down the rabbit hole. So this is me asking you because so many people are like, ah, soy, uh, like estrogen. What is your take on the research that is out there about that? Okay. So soy is a phytoestrogen, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So what it does is it binds to the estrogen receptor. So for those who don't know what receptors are, think of a key and it has to fit into the lock, right? So if uh, the key doesn't fit, it can't open the door and the key is essentially useless. So estrogen is like the key and the receptor is like the lock. So estrogen has to bind to it in order to exhibit its action and um, phytoestrogens are chemically very similar in shape, and so they can bind to the receptor, but it doesn't exert the same effect. And so what ends up happening is you don't have the same level of estrogen in your body, which is actually a very protective thing because if you have less estrogen, it's kind of, it's protective against like things like breast cancer. So though people think soy can increase your risk of breast cancer, that's actually not true at all. And if that was the case, then Asian populations would have much higher rate than Americans, but they actually have, well, they had lower rates until they westernized their diets. So tells you something. Mm -hmm. So it actually, it really helps to improve when you have lower circulating estrogen levels, which you can have more of from things like meat products. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So talk meat products, red meat, good or bad. For red food. meat. Oh, it's so bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not saying you need to never eat red meat. A lot of people who eat red meat can get pregnant just, just fine. But there is enough data to show that uh, saturated fats can be harmful for ovulation and your overall reproductive capacity. And we know that red meat contains a lot of that. Um, it also has been shown in very preliminary data. So it's not anything quite conclusive yet, but it can reduce implantation rates as well for embryos. Yep. So it really is like when we look at most of the dietary recommendations, they're like, eat a palm, like one or two, two times a week, not like yeah. six days a week. Right. And it's right. so fascinating because when I did, like we had a, we had a membership at one point and I used to put together these weekly meal plans using this like service that where I'd put in all the meal plans, it would calculate all the nutrition. And I swear I struggled to meet the daily like iron and zinc requirements when I was like having high meat diets that every time I keep having to sub out like we're kind of taught you know like uh like plant-based sources are not great for iron but lentils actually have more iron than a steak yeah totally. and yep. everyone's like oh yeah but it doesn't absorb well well you I think for, my understanding is that your body absorption adjusts but also you just need to eat it with vitamin c like capsicum i was i was exactly going to say that yeah you just need the vitamin c and yeah. um and it'll help with the absorption i so i always used to be like crap like i had so i'd put stuff in and then i'd be like i have to sub it out for lentils or black beans in order to get the you know, like natural nutrition. Right. Up. So I, that was really eye opening for me, even though I uh, knew a lot of stuff. So dairy, good or bad for fertility? Controversial. Mm. Okay. So this 
is where I have to remove my bias of being primarily plant-based vegan. Mm. And I can't sit here and say milk is bad for you, dairy is bad for you. Now, um, there are studies that do show that it can be detrimental. And the main reason for that is that dairy contains galactose. And galactose specifically has been shown in various studies to impact egg quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has been shown in both animal and human studies. But um, there have been some more recent studies, and this is like clinical trials, like from the Nurses Health Study, where they showed that um, basically increasing your consumption of like full fat dairies actually did not impact your reproductive outcomes and may have potentially helped it a little bit. So the reality of dairy is that it's controversial. Some studies show it's terrible. Some studies show it's actually beneficial as long as it's not like skim or low fat. That being said, I would just err on the side of caution. You can consume some dairy. Don't overdo it with the dairy. It shouldn't be your primary source of protein. Yeah. Um, And for anyone who doesn't know, the nurses study is like whenever you start studying nutrition or anything, inevitably you will come across the nurses study. It was this study where they tracked like a fuck ton of nurses over a long (laughs) time, like all of these different things in the nurses lifestyles, like exactly what they ate, everything like that for a long time. So there's a lot of particularly nutritional it's out of Harvard too. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so yeah. there's a lot of, a lot of different things will always reference the nurses study. And so people might be like, what? But it's just like, it was just because it had such a huge sample size and such yeah. like a wide over a long period of time as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's, that's why lots of people reference the nurses study. So exercise, and I know this is your jam, and I loved your explanation just recently on Instagram on this. How much is too much? All right. So in a nutshell, too much would, we, we don't have a perfect definition of how much too much is, mm-hmm. but um, based on what's been studied, up to 60 minutes a day of vigorous, high-intensity exercise is actually beneficial not harmful whether you're trying to conceive you are pregnant even with history of miscarriages or are postpartum so of course after you've healed um now there's some time periods where you're not going to exercise for example if you're going through ivf and you're going through stimulation and the main reason for that is because your ovaries are so enlarged they can uh kind of twist on itself. It's called an ovarian torsion, which is a surgical emergency. And so it's very painful and it can cause you to potentially um, lose an ovary. And so this is why during your stimulation, you can't really exercise much. Um, That being said, the recommendation, uh, and if you go to the CDC's website, they'll even quote the U.S. Department of health and human services, where they say that even for women trying to conceive and who are pregnant, it is recommended that they exercise a minimum of 150 minutes per week. And two of those sessions should be resistance training. So that's essentially weightlifting. 
And if you ever want to see someone slay at weightlifting, go to your Instagram. Sometimes I feel like I live vicariously through you. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till 2021. Can we just circle back to stimulation and exercise during stimulation? Because this might be a plot twist for many women who didn't realize this. So like gentle, I just come back to my acupuncturist always saying to me, gentle walking only. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the thing. For the listeners, since most of them don't know me on a personal level, I am so dedicated to exercise that rest days are actually my least favorite days of the week. Like I dread rest days. I don't like them. I want to move. I force myself to take two rest days a week just because I don't want to because truthfully, I spend almost two hours a day at the gym. <laughs> okay. So um, I know, I know it's, I, I have an addiction. I understand that. Like I'm trying to really control my mind with it, but also I did not exercise at all during my stimulation when I went through IVF. Mm -hmm. And yep. that tells you something. <laughs> yes. Okay. So if Sasha can do it. You can do it. If I can do it, you can certainly do it. <laughs> oh, all right. So uterine lining, what's too thin, what's ideal, what's too thick? All right. So too thin, based on many, many studies, would be six millimeters or less. Mm -hmm. okay? um, they tend to have lower pregnancy rates, and so it's, it's less favorable. Things we're looking at in addition to thickness is the pattern. So we look for what's called a trilaminar pattern. We want to see three bright white lines. That's always very favorable. And ideally, most reproductive endocrinologists like to see it eight millimeters or more. So that's usually what we're looking to get when it comes to lining. Um, there have been some newer studies that do talk about not necessarily too thick because they've, they've tried to study this over and over again and no thickness has ever been shown to be really too thick where it'll actually be detrimental. However, I have seen um, studies talking about something called compaction. So once it does get thick, you want to see something called compaction. And if you don't see that, then it can result in lower pregnancy rates. But that isn't really set in stone yet. To my knowledge, I haven't, like, it's just a few studies that have recently been published on fertility and sterility. And so let's say someone is at the six to eight millimeter range mm -hmm. so 7 7.5 would they still benefit from potentially i don't know like massage like uterine massage or something like that to try and fit or acupuncture to try and see if they can thicken that tight or would you be like man so honestly there's been a number of uh randomized control trials and the results from them have been quite controversial, but mm -hmm. overall, most of the data points that no, it doesn't really help. But in the same time, like when it comes to things like, I mean, you spoke about acupuncture. So when I think acupuncture, I think relaxation mm -hmm. and there is enough evidence that any sort of relaxation techniques will actually improve pregnancy rates after an embryo transfer. And so if, yoga, meditation, relaxation, acupuncture, all that stuff is helping you to stay relaxed, then just do it. Who mm -hmm. cares about the evidence? Even if it is controversial, I think at that point it's worth it if it's going to keep you relaxed and calm in preparation for an embryo transfer. 
So I'm going to skip my next question then and segue into my ne the question after that. Does the research suggest to you that there's benefit in women who are going through IVF treatments to partake in things like whether it's regular meditation, like mind-body programs, like what I do, yoga, seeing a psychotherapist, things that will help them manage. And I just want to be really clear about like the word manage versus the word eliminate because there's going mm -hmm. to be stressful times and things like that. But there's a difference between doing nothing and a difference between being an active you know, participant in your treatment and doing things like that alongside their IVF treatments. Is there any research out there that kind of suggests that it's beneficial? It, it's kind of similar to what I had just said in terms of there, there isn't like direct proof to show that if you do acupuncture right before your transfer, you will have better success. However, I do truly believe that poorly managed anxiety and stress can be very detrimental to your success because, I mean, we do know that chronic stress leads to chronic cortisol secretion that's inflammatory. And, and we know that there, that is definitely, um, there's a connection to when it comes to natural ovulation and reproduction, your body just shuts it off if it's too stressed one way or another. So I think that doing all of those things, whatever works to help you manage your stress and anxiety, that is either related to infertility or anything else in life can be very beneficial and should be, it's worthwhile doing. Yeah. Well, obviously I agree, but yeah. <laughs> okay. My last question. Thank you, man. This has been such a, I feel like this has been such an awesome session. How old is too old and what are some of the signs that it's time, like really time to, look at other options in terms of family creation um is so, it all doom and gloom at 35 no it's not it really is not i mean there are even women in their early 40s that get pregnant with their own eggs um the reality of being older is that you know for for some women it for some women it'll be easier and for others they're gonna deal with a lot of hardship a lot of miscarriages, and it's it's going to be very difficult. Um, and so it's it's never one size fits all. So this is where kind of getting a full evaluation early on. And Not waiting to like don't just don't, don't wait. Oh, this you even posted this yesterday. Like you don't need to wait twelve months. You can get no. some preliminary testing done on things earlier. Like yes, I saw this your post just the yes. other day. Even honestly, even if you just want to do it, just to do it, then just go ask a doctor. If the doctor is not willing to do that, you need to go see somebody else who is. Because, I mean, at, at this point, the, the physician should be just like on your side, willing to help you, there to advocate for you. And so it's why I love you. Yeah. This is, yeah, there's like nothing wrong with just wanting to know your AMH because you want it. Like, mm -hmm. geez. Just, yes. If you want it, just for no reason at all, just ask for it. <laughs> but it's never for no reason because for some women, they might just not, they might be kind of playing around with the idea, for example, of freezing eggs. And they're like, well, I don't know. Well, let me just check my AMH. Oh my God, it's one. Mm -hmm. You know, wake up call. 
I'm just going to go ahead and do it. I, I, why wait? What if it drops lower next year? And then I don't have the same egg reserve because realistically you, you might. Done. You right, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it wasn't because my, I mean, my AMH is very high because I have PCOS, but um, it was just kind of like, I know that with age, it becomes significantly more difficult because the egg quality is just not the same. It, it's, it's not anything we choose. It's just, unfortunately, the way us humans have evolved and it sucks. It really freaking sucks. Um, but the, the good news is that, you, you know, it's not too late. I mean, it can be for some women where they just have very poor egg quality and diminished ovarian reserve. And so it's going to be based on every individual. So there isn't like a number cutoff. It just depends on your egg quality, your AMH and your history. So your overall workup, what do we see? And for some women who have like a very high I've seen people who are practically perimenopausal and they're like, I don't care. I want to try anyway because I need closure. And that's perfectly fine. You got to do what you got to do for your own sanity and see who knows. It might work. You never know. It's less than 1% chance, but it could still work. And so I, yeah. I, I think just having that discussion and, and seeing what works for the patient is the way to go. Mm-hmm. And is there like, but is there, a certain indication and I know this is very every case in every fertility specialist but is there a certain time when you'd be like you've got to look at stuff now yeah okay so I would say for example if you have like a non-detectable AMH Mm. we scan you there's no antral follicles and your FSH level Mm -hmm. your follicle stimulating hormone is elevated that indicates ovarian failure if we know that you have ovarian failure, you, you don't have eggs to work with. Like, that's just reality. It's very hard reality. I can't even imagine what women with this diagnosis even go through. But at that point, like, this is where you have to move on to, to donor eggs. It's just like with the male partner, if they have what's called azospermia, so literally no sperm or maybe one or two sperm on the semen analysis and we ch- we test their hormone and find out that they have testicular failure it's like we could try to stimulate with all the hormones in the world it will the testes will not respond i can give you all the gonadotropin and injectable meds in the world your ovaries will not respond why because your brain's already doing what the medications are trying to do and it's not working and so this is where we have to have that conversation of do you want to try donor eggs, donor sperm, donor embryos? So there's various options. And then even with those comes a time where, you know, you might have someone in their 50s who are now coming in saying, okay, well, I understand I need donor gametes, but I want to be, I want to have a baby. And now we're dealing with the ethical dilemma of someone who is much older who might not be around for the entirety of their child's like most of their life. And so every clinic has their own cutoff. Our clinic is age 51. And so after the age of 51, we just no longer do embryo transfers. Yep. Yep. And I think that's probably as concrete an answer as we could ever, like someone could ever give, appreciate that because it is so such an individual thing. But I think that if we 
can take one thing away probably from this whole podcast it's to find a specialist who you feel you can openly and honestly chat with and who will give you answers that you feel like you can like buy into and understand you feel like you've been adequately explained like what's going on and someone who's willing to like really work with you to help you create a family and be open and honest with you as well i've completely loved all these answers i know that we like last podcast that we did together i don't know about you but i got so many messages being like thank you for explaining iui yes. i don't get so many after this episode as well <laughs> so if anyone's like hit me up with your fast track questions then you know, we are happy to do an encore of this anytime you want. Totally. Something you want us to dive into further, we can totally do that as well. So thank you everyone so much for listening to us. Sasha, you're the bomb.com. Thank you so much. I love you. I love being here with you. Ah, appreciate it. Guys, you can hit us up. Okay, you have to let me, so your Instagram handle changed just recently because you got married. (laughs) Are you long distance married right now? So, well, okay, we're not quite married yet. I just legally changed my name. Okay, the wedding, the wedding is in May, but I changed my name because I'm working on my permanent medical license and I Mm -hmm. didn't, by the time it was finished, and ready I would already be married so we figured we'd just go ahead and do that so it is now Sasha Hackman MD so S-A-S-H-A-H-A-K-M-A-N-M-D no C it's not like H-A-C-K-M-A-N it's H-A-K-M-A-N you can find me at Robin Birkin it's all very exciting we appreciate you being here have a great day everyone and we'll catch you in the next episode Okay, Warrior, I need to ask you a huge favor. Did you know that the Fertility Warriors podcast comes out every Wednesday? So why not subscribe so that you get notified of future episodes? But also, if you liked this episode, and especially if you're a long-term listener, you would make my day if you would jump into your podcast player and leave me a written review. Seriously, I live for these. But more importantly, they tell the podcast gods that this podcast is helpful so that they can send it out to more people and you can help me help others in the process. I would be ever so grateful for a podcast review. But lastly, Warrior, I need to also let you know, I am not a doctor or a dietitian or a financial advisor. I'm me. And the information in this podcast is for information and inspirational purposes only based on my own experiences. So please don't substitute the information you hear on the Fertility Warriors podcast for professional advice. And know that girl, in the world of trying to conceive, there are no guaranteed pregnancy or other outcomes. Please check out my website, robinberkin.com, if you would like to read my full terms and conditions.